Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll sit down with author Aaron Cohen to talk about his experiences co-writing jazz legend Ramsey Lewis's memoir. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review Goodman Theater's new production, Antonio's Song, I Was Dreaming of a Son. Later in the show, I'll check in with the executive director of the Jazz Institute of Chicago to hear how life after the pandemic is coming along and to learn more about a prestigious award that's being given to WDCB's own Al Carter Bay. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. This past September, music lovers mourned the loss of renowned pianist and composer Ramsey Lewis. The multiple Grammy Award winner and NEA Jazz Master died of natural causes at the age of 87. Lewis left behind an impressive legacy as a musician, composer, broadcaster, and jazz ambassador. Unbeknownst to many, Lewis had been working on a memoir with Chicago-based author Aaron Cohen. The book, Gentlemen of Jazz, A Life in Music, came out this past week. The autobiography provides insight into Lewis's remarkable journey from growing up in Chicago's Cabrini-Green neighborhood to his ascension to the top of the jazz and pop charts. Beyond his success in the recording studio and on stage, the renowned pianist was also a trusted mentor for younger musicians and an ambassador for jazz on the airwaves. I recently caught up with Cohen to talk about what it was like working on this book with Ramsey Lewis. So from what I understand, the, the very beginning of this project was started when Mr. Lewis's agent reached out to you. Yes, so uh, Ramsey Lewis's agent, uh, Brett Steele, uh, called me and asked me if I wanted to work with Ramsey Lewis on his memoir. He was very interested in telling his life story and wanted uh, me to help him with it. And I was, of course, very honored to uh, do so. Um, so I met with Ramsey and his wife, Jan, at their place uh, over in the Streeterville neighborhood. And uh, I had my ideas for what I wanted to do with the book, and they uh, coincided with what Ramsey wanted to do for the book. And so we we met and got along very well. Um, I mean, it's, it's impossible not to get along with Ramsey Lewis. He's such a... <laughs> smart, funny, lovely, wonderful man. And um, we also had, I had my outline for the book. And we met and I interviewed him to do the sample chapter to send out to potential publishers along with the outline and reason for doing the book. And that's how it began. And then I would interview him about you know, once every week, every couple weeks. And it just took off from there. Did you have a, a connection with him prior to this whole project coming together? Well, you know, I met him a few times. The most memorable time, I met him in 1998. I met Ramsey Lewis, and it was December 1998, and we were part of the Chicago delegation to the Havana International Jazz Festival. Ramsey Lewis was going as a performer, and I was going to cover it for Downbeat magazine. And I had spoken to him on the way to Cuba, and I met him also, uh, met, that was when I met him, and then 
I spoke with him as well, just on a few occasions. Uh, when I was at Downbeat, I was at one of the tapings for his uh, WTTW uh, TV show. Spoke with him briefly then. But I had not I had not interviewed him because no matter who I was working for, whether it was for Downbeat or the Tribune, it was always a more senior guy who would interview Ramsey Lewis. So I never got the assignment to interview him. It was always my boss or whoever who was interviewing him. So, um, you know, I would just speak with him casually before we started working on the book. But of course, I saw him perform on numerous occasions and, you know, loved his music, loved his performances. I loved, of course, hearing him on the radio or seeing him on television. So it's impossible to grow up in the Chicago area and not have some uh, connection to or affinity to or uh, love for Ramsey Lewis's music if you are attuned to music. What is the role of when a, a co-author comes on to help an artist write their autobiography? Like, what is your role in that process? It was interviewing him. It was uh, getting his thoughts down on paper. But of course, I would also research uh, so I could not just ask questions that were informed, but also remind him of things he might have said or did decades earlier, which he might have forgotten. And one of the things that I also did was play him his old recordings, because we know the hits. We know In Crowd and Sun Goddess, and he would play those in concert. So, of course, those songs were always on his mind. But there were so many great records he made, especially in the late 1960s, early 1970s, mid-1970s that were so long ago and so many tracks that he just hadn't played, performed live, that he hadn't really remembered them, which is understandable. He's recorded so much. So I would play him these recordings and get his thoughts about them. And that was the high point for me, was watching his reaction as I would play him these records from like 1969 and 1970. And I would get those reactions down. Another thing about this book was that both Ramsey Lewis and I wanted to include voices of other people he worked with, his other, uh, his family, his other musical colleagues, and to weave their voices in with Ramsey's. And there were some issues and some things where uh, Ramsey's perspective was different than other people's perspectives. And these were some very crucial uh, episodes in his life. So I felt it was important. And Ramsey also felt it was important to include their voices. And Ramsey also, when a certain perspective was not quite the same as his, he agreed to have it both in the book, which says a lot about how he wanted this story to be told. Just as an aside, we'll, we'll probably get into this later, but I was surprised uh, as far as the amount of music he released. I think he says from 60 to 64, he released like a dozen albums for chess. Yes, yeah, so Ramsey released, with the Ramsey Lewis trio, released you know album upon album for chess, which tells you a lot of things without having to go that deep into it. It shows you how hard uh, chess records worked them. It shows you how you know active they were on the scene. It shows you what that whole process was about. And it's also interesting, too, because when Ramsey Lewis said that they realized that the Beatles were just recording at most one record a year, that they could, hey, it's like, why should we record more than these guys? So it was also interesting, too, that Ramsey Lewis also always had an eye on the popular music market and what worked there, um, that he was comparing the Ramsey Lewis trio in this regard to the biggest pop group on the planet.
if we uh, go back a little bit, the, the book is chronological. Lewis writes in pretty specific detail about his childhood growing up in the, the near north side. You know, in those early chapters when he's talking about his introduction to piano and learning to play, there's kind of a, a humbleness that comes through because he never really writes about what I would imagine what people's responses were. From what you understand, was it clear right away that he had an aptitude for, for piano or that there was uh, quite a bit of talent there? That was the thing. So, you know, Ramsey Lewis, as a young person who was taking piano lessons, and he speaks a lot about his teachers and what his teachers meant to him. And he talks about his family and how his family didn't just encourage him to practice but made sure that he practiced. And I think he was so, at that age, as a young person, so involved with learning and so involved with studying classical tradition. He was playing in the church uh, alongside his father and delving into music for a religious purpose as well. Of course, this was all before he got into jazz, that he was such an eager student and he was such a hard worker that I think he was more focused on the job and the endeavor and the practice rather than, you know, um, seeking attention for himself. And he even says that quite a bit, and it comes up in the book, where he says that he was never a, uh, hey, look, ma, no hands kind of show-off guy. And that was true throughout his life, so I'm sure that's how he felt as a child as well. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section on WDCB. I'm talking in studio with author Aaron Cohen about the book he co-wrote with the late, great Ramsey Lewis. It's called The Gentleman of Jazz, A Life in Music. Of course, uh, we can't talk about Ramsey Lewis without mentioning the in-crowd. the Ramsey Lewis trio records this uh, cover of a Dobie Gray song, an instrumental um, in 1965. Fair to say this changed everything? It certainly did. For a jazz trio to have a crossover pop hit, um, you know, at an era when there was all of these big hits from Motown and the Beatles, and here comes the Ramsey Lewis trio with an instrumental jazz version of an R&B tune and that becomes a crossover pop hit, that was really an incredible thing. And that was something that uh, made Ramsey Lewis's reputation throughout his life and was something that everybody recognized him for. And of course, he uh, certainly enjoyed uh, the popular success, um, although it took a while to channel that to real money. But still, he enjoyed the popular success and the recognition and the opportunities that that provided. And I think that's one of the things that I can't remember who said it, but they always say that, you know, luck is when preparedness meets opportunity. And I think one of the things to really know about uh, the in crowd and its popularity was that, you know, this group, the Ramsey Lewis Trio, had been working together for a while. And they had, uh, so they had certainly honed and the dialogue that comes with being a strong working group, working together, touring together, touring the country together, performing all these shows, but also being very open-minded to new ideas so that when they're, and of course the whole story is told in the book is how they heard the in crowd, the song that they decided to cover. 
and just the idea of like, what the hell, let's just put this as a fun <laughs> thing at the end of the album because it's fun. So all of that worked in their favor along with whatever, you know, fortune uh, smiles upon one who takes these chances. So certainly, and the details of the story are in the books. So I don't want to give away right. too much about sure. the genesis of the song other than to speak more conceptually about what was happening. One of the things, and this might just be your opinion, but the way you know he talks about it is the album gets released, he doesn't really think about it, then he gets a call from Chess, like, you got a hit. Yeah. And then it explodes. From your research or just your knowledge, uh, why did it catch on? You know, it's such a great song. It's such a great <laughs> performance. And also to be, I mean, uh, Chess's record certainly um, had input in the media, especially... Uh, at stations here in Chicago, like WVON. And so, um, you know, Ramsey certainly as a performer was certainly not the one making those sorts of moves in terms of uh, what a record company can do to make a record a hit. But I think that was part of what was going on. And I'm being deliberately vague here. Okay, yeah, I understand. (laughs) But no doubt, great song great musicians, great performance that they captured, but... uh, Let me just add that being on Chess Records helped. Sure. Still, even with all those things, those things don't always catch fire. No, they don't, but you know, one of the things too about Ramsey was um, a lot of what he came from was the church and gospel. And that is music with such emotional immediacy that he was certainly tapped into that idea of emotional immediacy, which, you know, makes something beloved. So the in crowd comes out in 65... Mr. Lewis's career and the, the trios explodes, but I guess on the kind of one of the downsides of that or like a negative impact, it, it kind of causes some strife within that original trio. It does. And this, I was referring to how different people have different perspectives. And, you know, Red Holt is still alive. And so I wanted to get his perspectives on what happened between them. So, you know, Ramsey Lewis, you know, told me his view, his memory, his perspective as to what divided this original trio. And Red Holt uh, told me as well. But I also want to add that Ramsey and Red Holt also explained what made the trio really great to begin with. So they're very descriptive about the musical and personal qualities of each member of the group, as well as what caused the group to break up. And so that's that's all there in the book. I'll use that as a segue, you know, the, the trio does split up but mr lewis wants to keep going so he fills those two spots and then that's in the book it references he already knew maurice white but this kind of brings them closer yeah i mean uh, he knew maurice white because uh he would go to chess and you know maurice was always there doing sessions and maurice white being very inquisitive and so certainly try to engage ramsey lewis in conversation and then cleveland eaton as well. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful bassist who was also very crucial to uh, Ramsey Lewis's trios. So even though uh, Red Holt and L.D. Young were great musicians, uh, Chicago in the 1960s and today has so many wonderful musicians working that uh, Ramsey Lewis certainly had his choice of plenty of good people to work in his groups. For me, as a, a radio nerd, I'm a music nerd, but also a, a radio nerd, so it was interesting to learn about his introduction to, to broadcasting. He almost, I wouldn't say fell into it, but it was almost like happenstance, that, like how he first gets started. Yes, and um, it was one of those things, too, where 
he just saw an opportunity, was very open-minded uh, to try something. And that's another thing, too, where addressing people and being a very public uh, people-type person, I, I don't know if that's the right phrase, but was able to convey through his voice and also his knowledge of music, his ability to uh, include um, some of the great jazz musicians who had become his friends and also to present jazz historical great jazz to a wide mainstream audience over the airwaves was something that he was able to accomplish that is another part of his legacy that people should remember. The One of the, I think the next to last chapter dives into his music projects uh, later in life and, and he stayed pretty active right up until not too long ago. Well not only was Ramsey Lewis active as a performer later in life but he was also doing very different things through the advice, the inspiration, the encouragement, and the support of organizations like Ravinia. Ramsey Lewis started getting into classical composition with people like Scott Hall, and his Proclamation of Hope, his epic piece about Abraham Lincoln, his music for the ballet, the Joffrey Ballet. Um, these are all really new, different projects that he was doing at you know a pretty advanced senior age. So that is just such an important uh, lesson for anybody of any age to consider, is to never stop learning, never stop trying something completely different, uh, and that the rewards are many. Sadly, Ramsey Lewis passed away this past September when was the last time you spoke with him? I spoke with him in the summer, uh, about maybe six weeks before he passed. And we were going over some of the chapters uh, in the book. And that was the, the last conversation we had. Did you have a, a clear indication of what he wanted that final version of the, the book to be? I believe that we had gotten to the point where uh, he knew where the book was going and you know, he had his input and I, I believe that the book is as he would have wanted it to be. Um, although, you know, it's just, it's very hard for me to talk about because I, I very much miss him, but I'd, I'd like to think that, yeah, it's what he wanted it to be. I'm holding the book right here. You got a pretty impressive pull quote on the, the cover from a former president. Well, Ramsey Lewis was very supportive of Barack Obama's Senate campaign um, before anybody else was. In fact, um, when I, well, I shouldn't say anybody because there were people who were volunteering for it. When he ran, I remember, because I did some volunteering for uh, Barack Obama's uh, Senate campaign when he was running in the primary. And I remember one of the things that I had to do as a volunteer was let people know about a fundraising concert that Ramsey Lewis was doing for Barack Obama's uh, Senate campaign. And this was when Barack Obama was a long shot to get the Democratic nomination for the U.S. Senate. So uh, Ramsey Lewis was a supporter, supporter of Barack Obama before any celebrity that I can think of, before anybody known in the media. So I think that's another thing that Ramsey Lewis should be given credit for. And also, in the book, Ramsey Lewis talks about how he met Barack Obama and sure. what made him realize that Barack Obama was a politician who people should Pay support. attention to. Yes. Yes. There's, a, there's a middle section here with some photos, and there's a picture of uh, the two of them together, I think, in the Oval Office. Yeah, by the way, Barack Obama won that Senate campaign and went on <laughs> to... <laughs> he did some big things. He did some big things, yeah.
What are you hoping readers take away from the book? Well, I hope readers take away how significant Ramsey Lewis's musical compositions were, how significant his musical work was, his musical performances were, you know, everything he did musically. Um, but I also feel that uh, his journey is one that people should really consider to be an important story, an important Chicago story. Uh, his parents came up through the Great Migration, raised him in what's you know, now the Cabrini Green area, and they really were very a supportive family, a very hardworking family, a family that clearly sacrificed a lot for uh, their for their for themselves, for their lives, to make their kids' lives better. And not just Ramsey Lewis, but his sisters as well. And the lessons that Ramsey Lewis lived as far as teaching people, being an educator, as well as learning himself uh, constantly that life is a ongoing educational process that and it's also one can be very successful and also be a really nice guy too you know i did want to mention there's also going to be some events and one big special event in chicago on june 22nd june 22nd at millennium park uh, downtown there's going to be a big concert celebration that's part of the uh, millennium park music series uh, which is a wonderful series and one of those is a celebration of ramsey lewis and then also that day to coincide i'll be doing a panel discussion about ramsey lewis at the chicago cultural center which is right across the street right across michigan avenue from millennium park and we'll have books available there as well on uh, May 18th, I will be speaking at the Galena Public Library in lovely Galena, Illinois. And on June 24th at the Arlington Heights Lit Stroll, which is presented by the Arlington Heights Public Library, where local authors are going to be speaking about their work and meeting readers and talking. And so that's on uh, June 24th at the Arlington Heights, downtown Arlington Heights. Aaron, really enjoyed the book. Thanks so much for making time to, to talk to me. Thank you very much for having me. It's really great to be here. And thank you for all that you do for music and jazz and the arts in the Chicago area. It's great to get your support. That's Aaron Cohen. He co-wrote Ramsey Lewis's memoir, Gentlemen of Jazz, A Life in Music. The book just came out. It's available everywhere books are sold. You can find more info at blackstonepublishing.com. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the Arts section on WDCB every Sunday, make sure to check out the show's website, theartsection.org. You can find all sorts of additional content there all the time at theartsection.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. A man confronts his demons as he navigates his adult life as an artist and father in the Goodman Theater's new production, Antonio's Song, I Was Dreaming of a Son. The solo piece was initially workshopped in 2019 as part of the Contemporary American Theater Festival. The work is autobiographical based on theater artist Antonio Edward Suarez's experiences. He co-wrote Antonio's song, I Was Dreaming of a Son, with Pulitzer Prize finalist Dale Orlander-Smith. 
Directed by Mark Clements, the production incorporates choreographed movement, music, and projected imagery. Jonathan, we'll start with you. What else do we need to know about Antonio's song, I Was Dreaming of a Son? Well, it's very much a multi-layered piece. It's a solo piece, as you have explained. And it kicks off with uh, this man strolls on stage. It is Antonio Edward Suarez himself, an actor, a dancer, and a writer. Uh, The stage is a nearly empty, neutral set. And he begins by telling us with wonder and with joy about his son, initially as an infant and then as a son, a boy of five years old. And when the boy intrudes uh, on Antonio's private and creative time, Uh, The situation escalates, and he slaps his son in anger. It's mimed. There's no child actor portraying the son. It's a mime gesture, which uh, Antonio immediately regrets, and it triggers his personal story about uh, the perils of childhood, about inherited cultural attitudes, about seeking one's self, and about contemporary urban America, including peer group pressure and the nature of parenting in a ghetto setting. The son of the title, it turns out, is not his five-year-old child, but Antonio himself, as he relates the story from infancy to young adulthood. And indeed, he has taken a cultural and developmental journey far greater than most of us, beginning with a balancing act, balancing his mixture of Irish, Latino, and black heritage on the extremely mean streets of ghetto Brooklyn. It progresses to uh, the time when he is a teen and he nearly whacks a man who was abusing his sister. We go through his discovery of dance and theater against all social expectations of the community he lives in, and finally to his earning a master's degree at Harvard University. It really is a remarkable story. Inside the family apartment, he has a tough-slash-gentle father with sickle cell disease, and he has a chain-smoking-slash-tough mother. Out on the streets, he spends different days with his black friends and his Latino friends. Never the two shall mix. He bops when he walks, he talks tough, and he secretly envies those who were different and had the confidence to show it. Uh, that's kind of a nutshell summary of a lot of the themes and, and uh, specific beats of the, uh, of, the, of the show, of the piece. Uh, Kerry, what's your initial take? I think it's interesting that he collaborated with Dale Orlander Smith on this. I don't know if you saw her show from, well, it's well over 10 years now, but Black and Blue Boys, Broken Men, which was also at the Goodman's Owen Theater. Uh, that was a series of monologues that Orlander Smith, who, much like Anna Devera Smith, works on uh, drawing material from interviews with, with several real-life subjects. In that one, she was also sort of anatomizing cycles of abuse, toxic masculinity, how easy it is for someone who has become a victim to turn into then a predator, and this is mostly around issues of sexual abuse. Now, that's not necessarily one of the themes in Antonio's song, I Was Dreaming of a Son, but I agree with you that it is a very interesting and multivalent journey into how do I balance my identity? Who are the people that I look to? I thought it was really interesting that while I went into it thinking, oh, this is going to be a story of how he had a father who was abusive. And that is not the case. His father is a very loving presence. His father is present, which is not the case for everyone that he knew growing up. But his father, despite you know the sense that we get that he's a tough guy, 
Yes, he has sickle cell, but I believe they say that he's he's a gun runner. You know, he we get the sense that he has jobs that are not necessarily completely on the up and up side of the law. He is not really fully able to protect either Antonio or his his sister, his beloved sister Pinky, from their mother, who we see as kind of an embittered woman. Uh, there's a, the way she's introduced, I thought was really interesting, Jonathan, with the metaphor of dance, because dance is obviously a huge theme in this piece. <laughs> The his mother sees real, herself real. as a dancer. We think, oh, she was a party girl. She got out there. She loved dancing. And then there's a shift where we see him embodying his mother and her limp that she was left with after polio. So you get the sense that these are two parents who came together, two people who came together, who both had, well, in his father's case, you know, an ongoing health issue. His mother left in some ways handicapped, disabled. But more, it's more like a mental state of, of embitteredness, and that is how she plays out her relationships with her children. And I thought that was just really interesting, that the father loves them, and yet there's a point beyond which he does not seem able to step in order to fully protect them. And I think that's a really nuanced thing that I haven't seen addressed an awful lot in pieces like this. You know, So the line is not the clean, bright line for, Dad abused me, now I slap my son. It's, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also did love the way that he discovered dance. Uh, he sees Mikhail Baryshnikov dancing on a program, probably great performances or something like that, and realizes that there's this, you know, there's this very handsome, muscular man who is able to move, you know, with, with both lightness and grace and great athleticism, and that's what sort of sparks his desire to move into that world. So, in a way, perhaps for all the negative things he got from his mother, there is a sense, I think, at least in the show, that that love of dance and that desire to express through movement was somehow, you know, encoded from her into his DNA. Yeah. As he becomes a teenager, he begins to recognize what he calls his own visibility. He understands mm-hmm. that he is visible to other people around him, has an impact on them. Uh, as they have an impact on him, something he has not been, has not, uh, you know, consciously recognized before. But he does recognize his visibility, and he's also smart enough somehow to seize the openings that allow him a way out of this mean streets ghetto situation without ever demeaning or rejecting the people and culture of his Brooklyn neighborhood. Mm-hmm. He has come to understand uh, how they have shaped him, for better, mostly, but also sometimes for worse, as with his own son, which brings us full circle back to this opening act of violence. It's a pretty remarkable story, if not totally unique. You don't have to be from a Brooklyn ghetto to recognize and share some of Suarez's you know, uh, uh, stories about boyhood pressures, peer pressures, and the doubts that men feel as they stumble toward a recognition of, of mm-hmm. who they are and the nature of manhood. That's all fairly universal. Um, right. Suarez tells it with simple but powerful words written by himself and, as you know, the playwright Dale Orlando Smith. He speaks, you know, beautifully and believably and moves remarkably uh, directed by Mark Clements and also movement director Alexandra Beller, using she uses Suarez's inherited natural grace plus the dance training he received in his in his professional studies. Uh, you know, for me, there's nothing really revelatory in what Antonio's song has to tell us. 
but it's well told. It's highly personal. It's the kind of personal story that takes things we already know and makes them fresh again because we're seeing them through someone else's set of eyes, and those are it's a unique set of eyes. Right. And one thing that I was reminded of while watching it, particularly with the, with the story of him watching Boryshnikov, I don't know if you saw John Leguizamo's late 90s solo show about his childhood, Freak, but there's a moment in Freak where John Leguizamo talks about going to see a chorus line and seeing the character Morales and realizing, I have never seen you know, a Latino character on stage. I've never known that this is something that was open to me. So there's sort of a similarity. So I agree, yes, it's not, it's, it's similar, you know, it's not necessarily revelatory, but I think it's so sharply detailed and so fluidly told that I found it quite absorbing. And I think it's important to note, again, that it's not, again, the simple line of, here are all the toxic men in my life who I've had to escape. It's often the men in his life, including his father, but also including an uncle who's also a tough guy, but tells him, you don't want to do this at, at a very crucial point in the yes. story. This yes, is not exactly. the thing you want to be doing. And a friend who helps, you know, who he knows from childhood, who does, you know, go and study theater and encourages him to think about doing that. So there are, the, there are mother men around him who are either guiding him toward or guiding him away <laughs> from decisions. Um, and I think that's a really it, 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 it's not um, it's not a simple binary that he's on. Right. And I, you know, I think it's also that that opening sequence where he talks about his son is, is very, you know, it's very shocking. And you're just thinking, yes. well, you know, your son is just playing loud and you're just trying, you know, you're not commit, you know, you're not doing brain surgery here, dude. You're working on a show. You know? <laughs> um, but I think what's great is that he does not let himself off the hook. He's not pleading for us to forgive him. He's not saying, oh, my gosh. My... It's not poor, poor, pitiful me. It's like I need to understand why this happened, and I need to, you know, talk about these things in order to give you an idea of what what the world can be like and how we can maybe learn how to move past this. So two recommendations? Yes, yes, absolutely. A very, oh, yeah, entranc- yeah. A very entrancing solo performance, for, by all means. It's a, yeah. it, it, it runs an hour and 20 minutes, so it's an easy to take block of time and uh it's 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 just a lovely performance by a very very talented performer actor writer goodman theater's antonio's song i was dreaming of a son continues through may 28th carrie jonathan thanks so much you're, you're welcome, most welcome we'll talk with both of you next week tuned into the arts section my name is gary zydek if you love live music there's something undeniably alluring about the prospect of a secret show a london-based company is taking that concept to the next level by curating and presenting hundreds of secret shows around the world the idea for what today is called so far sounds was born in london back in 2009 Today, the company produces performances in 325 cities across the globe, including here in Chicago. Essentially, users go to the SoFar Sounds website, search their home city for a neighborhood, and buy a ticket, not knowing who's performing or the exact address of the performance. What you do know is you'll see three live acts from a wide variety of music genres, and the performance will be at an unusual venue. And despite a pandemic pause, people seem to really like the concept as So Far Sounds continues to grow. 
I recently caught up with the company's Chicago-based host operations manager for Central North America, Tori Hughes, to learn more about SoFar Sounds. So for folks that aren't familiar with this concept, how do you like to describe what SoFar Sounds is? We are a global music community of music lovers creating a space where music matters. Um, We do this through intimate concerts in unique locations, and we try to create lasting connections between artists and fans without the distractions or crowds or people talking or drinking um, and being loud around the shows. We want to make sure that artists really have a platform to share what they need to share. Um, we do we do pop-up shows, essentially, and we transform everyday spaces. So usually not your typical concert venue, but more like a living room or a rooftop or a boutique or museum. And we try to turn those spaces into captivating venues for secret gigs and creating inclusive experiences that bring people together. Let's talk a little bit about how it works then from the user side of things. So somebody visits the SoFar Sounds website and finds their city, and so for my audience, Chicago, and then they'll see like a menu of different neighborhoods, and so they can select. Yeah. I'll let you kind of describe it. They can select the neighborhood, and then they buy <laughs> they buy a ticket, but they don't know exactly what they're going to see or where exactly it's going to be. Yeah, exactly. So they go to the site, they can see the neighborhood listing and the date the show's taking place. And then just like the overarching venue restrictions. So say a space is 21 plus, it lets them know if it's BYOB or not, if there will be alcohol for sale, um, if there will be pets present. Those things are shown on the front of the site. But other than that, they have no idea where they're going or who they're seeing. So once they grab a ticket, they will receive the address 36 hours before the show but the artist lineup is secret until they arrive. So when they do arrive, our shows, um, they typically feature three acts, completely different genres for each act. Uh, We wanna make sure that no artist feels like an opener or a closer of the show. So three different genres, each artist plays for the same amount of time. Guests come, um, typically sit on the floor. It's very like picnic style. Um, Artists usually don't perform on a stage and there's just this intimate connection that's created through these shows when these artists perform um, that guests can enjoy. And there's no talking or texting during the shows either. So it really is like a you have to be there type experience. So using Chicago as an example, what would be an example of a potential venue? Yeah, so actually a little sneak peek for anyone listening. Um, We have some upcoming shows at some pretty iconic spaces downtown, like the Rookery is one of them. And um, Chicago Athletic Association is also hosting with us. But these venues can range from anywhere in Chicago, from someone's living room to um, Garfield Park Conservatory or the top of the Willis Tower. We've done them all. (laughs) So like the Rookery is like this uh, great piece of architecture. How does something like that come about? Is it you or your team reach out to like an interesting venue or a site that you think would make for a great location? How do some of these partnerships come about? Yeah, so it's a little of both. Um, Word of mouth is huge for So Far Sounds. It's how we've really grown to the scale that we're at now. For the Rookery specifically, they actually applied to host with us, which was really cool. When they came through, I was fairly new to Chicago um, and finding that space was just an absolute gem. They reached out to us, they heard about what we did, and they were interested in hosting. But a lot of the the spaces that we host with also come via word of mouth from our crew that help work the shows. Um, Our artists will suggest spaces or know someone that runs a space and connect me. Um, It comes through all different avenues. So then as far as the music, you say each So Far Sounds event has three acts, 
and they can be from a variety of music genres. And when it comes to music, that spectrum is, is pretty wide. So what is the, the scope of music genres that are in play here? Could you see classical, jazz, or is it more pop, rock, singer, songwriter? Yeah, we, we welcome all genres. We don't really have um, a niche that we fit in in that sense. You could see, honestly, like a poet, a comedian, and a rock band on a night. You could see a hip-hop artist, a pop artist, and a singer-songwriter on a night. It really, really varies. All of the artists that um, come through so far, they apply. So our artist team listens to them and just makes sure they'd be a good fit for a show. But otherwise, we don't we don't discriminate on who we bring in to perform um, for the audience. Yeah, I was going to ask about what the uh, kind of curation process is uh, on your end. Is there something that makes for a, a good artist slash act that fits for this model? Yeah, I would say um, I, I, I'm not on the artist team myself, but I know they do undergo, um, all artists undergo a review process. It's really just to take a peek at a live recording that they have or a um, recorded link to music that they have um just to take a listen to them and make sure that they, you know, didn't pick up a saxophone yesterday, (laughs) make sure that they're an established artist, but otherwise, yeah, that's kind of how they do it. And then in terms of like curating the lineups themselves, they do it in a really specific way, making sure the first artist kind of grabs everyone's attention. Typically the second artist is going to be a little bit more experimental. And then the last artist is usually more upbeat in the way that they bring all the, the lineups together. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with So Far Sounds' is Tori Hughes about the company's unique operations model. And so I was reading a little bit, and I didn't realize really the origins go all the way back to, to 2009 for So Far Sounds. I don't know when it you know came to Chicago, but over the years, I'm sure some like now famous artists have gotten their start through So Far Sounds. Yeah, absolutely. We champion a couple... Um, really big names that have played so far sounds in the past. We've had a show with Billie Eilish. We've had Ed Sheeran come through. We have had so many different artists here in Chicago specifically. um, We've done a show with Twista, who's like a rap icon known as the the fastest rapper alive uh, from Chicago. We have done shows with Saba, Vic Mensa and his new group, 93 Punks. Um, We had Julian Baker performing in 2017 in an apartment here in Chicago Tank and the Bangas have performed in Chicago. Um, you just really never know who you're going to see when you show up to our shows. It could be someone that really takes off in the future, like Leon Bridges used to play So Far Sound shows a lot, Bastille. All kinds of artists have, have started off with So Far shows and getting that those audiences you know, stuck on their music, and they just take off. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about it in terms of like emerging artists, you know, young artists doing this, but someone like Twista, obviously he's been around for a long time. So do you see sometimes like established artists reach out and want to do like a surprise show? Yeah, we have. I mean, the Ed Sheeran show that we had was actually a part of our Amnesty International partnership that we did um, in 2017. And it's things like that that get artists excited about, you know, being a part of so far. But we've had artists, bigger name artists, apply through our website. I can't put a a name to the application right now, but I remember very distinctly shortly after I started with SoFar, a very high-profile artist reached out to us um, just through the application process. And we were just, like, astounded. We were like, you could just, you know, 
reach out via email and we'll get you on a show. You've obviously proven that you are um, an established artist. But yeah, definitely. I think that something unique that so far brings to an artist's life that's used to playing on, you know, these big stages with these, these giant audiences is just that intimate, the intimacy of the room. Like there are people that are looking at you. They're not talking or texting. They're just respecting your music. And we've even had artists that play these, these huge shows that say even so far shows can be a little intimidating. Even if you're just in a someone's apartment with 50 people um, playing a show where everyone's looking at you and every single person is paying attention and not speaking can be a little intimidating even for the bigger artists. So oh, sure. it's, it's really cool to see who wants to get involved with what we're doing. That was Tori Hughes. She's with the company So Far Sounds. You can check it out for yourself at SoFarSounds.com. Glad you've tuned in this Sunday morning. Just wanted to take a moment here and wish a happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there listening. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. After a few pandemic gap years, the Jazz Institute of Chicago is ready to celebrate in person. The nonprofit is hosting its annual gala Thursday, May 18th at the Park West in Chicago. Local jazz lovers are excited to join the celebration. The event has already sold out. In addition to a live performance from Grammy winner Kurt Elling, the Jazz Institute will be handing out some awards, including one to WDCB's own Al Carter Bay. The longtime radio presenter and concert promoter will be recognized for a lifetime of jazz support with the Dr. Timuel Black Community Service Award. I recently caught up with the Jazz Institute of Chicago's executive director, Heather Ireland Robinson, to talk about the big night and what it's been like coming out of the pandemic. Even though we saw some incredible changes last year, there was still some uncertainty when it came to live events and audiences coming out. Does it feel like this year we're closer to being back to what it was like pre-pandemic? So there's some nuances to that, but we've got our Jazz City programs back in the park. You know, the Chicago Jazz Festival that we co-chair, the Jazz Festival Committee, along with our partners and friends over at the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events. And we, we went to one concert, one day, you know, just three acts in 2021. In 2020, we were fully online, so last year we were back fully, and this year we're back fully again. And you guys out in the audience, you jazz lovers and enthusiasts, are showing up and showing out, and we absolutely love it. If if anything's changed, I think people are more appreciative and even more misty-eyed. Like, the the thanks that we get for the programs we do are just a little heavier, like, thank you for being here. (laughs) And we say the same thing, no thank you all for being here, for coming out and for listening and supporting the music and the musicians. Yeah, whether it's jazz or pretty much any kind of live performance, it feels a little bit of like you didn't know what you had until it was gone. And so that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yes. Another event that's returning after a pandemic pause is the Jazz Institute of Chicago's annual gala. The event aims to raise awareness and funds. This is our chance to raise unrestricted funds for our programs and general operating, and we're so excited. For two Chicago classics, I'm going to say. One is the Park West, been around for many, many years as a, as a music venue. And then, of course, as I like to say, our Chicago homeboy, 
Kurt Elling <laughs> will be playing with his band of all-stars, including one of our former Jazzling students, Kyle Swan, and Leonard Simpson, who was one of our fellowship uh, pro- program awardees last year. So we are, the buzz is afoot that we're all coming together uh, to be back together again like we haven't done since 2019 for an in-person gala. Yeah, I love the Park West. It's a it's a oh, great place to see a concert. It's an amazing venue. One other thing that's going to take place uh, at the, this year's gala is the presentation of the uh, Dr. Timuel Black Community Service Award. It's going out this year to a WDCB's own Al Carter Yay. Bay. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about this award and why it's so special? Samuel Black served on the Jazz Institute of Chicago board for over 25 years, really just until a couple of months before his passing in 2021. And really was in every Zoom meeting, every, you know, everything that we did through the pandemic and even before he was, he absolutely showed up, but not without his wonderful wife, Zenobia Johnson Black, who made sure he was set up on Zoom, like we got to see her for every meeting. And so as we asked her to chair this event and said, you know, who do you think we should give this award to without hesitation? She said, Al Carter Bay, and I couldn't agree more. Not only is he an amazing DJ and a historian, you know, Al really has dedicated his life to jazz. He was starting jazz groups at his high school. And, you know, anytime anyone talks to him, you're going to hear so much about the story of jazz. And he really is an advocate for the African-American history portion of jazz too. I mean, he's an invaluable resource to us all. So for him to get this award and to think about how he's built community through jazz to us is just a perfect fit. Many of you listening have probably heard Al Carter Bay's voice here on WDCB. He's the host of Chicago Jazz Spotlight, which airs on Wednesday nights here at the station. And he also pops up frequently as a fill-in host during our daytime programming. Carter Bay has been spinning records and interviewing jazz musicians on the air at various Chicago radio stations for over 50 years. I recently sat down with the Chicago native for a conversation about his lifelong love of jazz. So did you grow up listening to, to jazz in your house? My cousin Dickie, William Dickerson, was a saxophonist with the Lionel Hampton Orchestra back in the 40s. Oh, wow. And so he was always gone, always had a lot of a lot of friends come over his house. There was Nicky Hill, Wilbur Ware, Wilbur Campbell, Johnny Griffin, Gene Ammons. All these guys would come by the house. And I was so, such a young guy, and they would send me out to the grocery store to buy candies for them, man, whenever they come over and they gave me a nickel or a dime for going out to making this trip to the store, uh-huh. you know. And they would play such great music. The music was just sounding so good. So I just, just fell in love with it. You grew up a jazz fan. Yes. So how did you end up in radio? Because I always loved hearing the guys on radio. There was one particular guy by the name of Al Benson and another guy by the name of Jack L. Cooper. Mm. On the radio station, which is now called WVON, it was then uh, WGES. Before it was WVON. WVON didn't come in until 1960, I think. And I would just listen to these guys talk on the air, and I would tell my mother I would want to be a radio person, Uh you know, every day. What was your first gig on the radio? WUIC, a college network over at the University of Illinois. Okay. Yeah, that's where I began. Just walked in. 
the guy said, okay, you know radio? I said, yeah. <laughs> just looking, looking at the board. I mean, he's like, man, what am I going to do next? <laughs> so I just stood up and watched him for a minute or two. Then I got to the knack of it, and I wound up staying over there until, until they closed the place. Yeah. I'm speaking in the mid, mid-70s. And then over the years, you were at uh, WBEE. Oh, yeah. I love being out there. That was such a enjoy to do nothing but jazz. That was an AM yeah. jazz station? AM, 1570 AM, in fact. You know, I was out there for about 10 years or more. Carter Bay was always interested in more than just playing records. He also wanted to interview the artists that he admired so much. Wanting always to know more about musicianship and what do they go through and how do they go through it and how do they like it and did they love the music. But it's a music to really sit and listen to. That's why I look at jazz as jazz being uh, America's classical music. And so it was something that, that I really loved, certain musicians that I had great enjoyment for. I've named earlier, like Gene Ammons, Wilbur Ware, Wilbur Campbell, Nicky Hill, who's, who passed away years and years ago. But these catchers had something different to offer. You mentioned Gene Ammons, so you ended up writing a, a book yeah. about him. Yeah, yeah. I just didn't put enough into the book to really make it a sensational, but that would have looked like an R.R. Donnelly trying to finish that book. Right <laughs> like now, a so, book. Yeah, it's about, that's right. 90 pages of what I remember of Gene Ammons, you know, after seeing him so many times and what him watching me grow up as a little boy to a man. You know, I can recall once when I, one of the last times I saw him was at the Jazz Showcase program Joe Siegel had going on for a number of years. So I, I wanted an interview to air over WOJO. So I go in here with my tape recorder, my microphone, everything. He says, come on back in the back, which is a dressing room. So I go back here. He says, you want a drink? I said, no. And he used to call me little boy. You know, he said, hey, little boy, you, you're a man now, huh? I said, yes, sir. So he says, come on, have a nip. So I said, yeah, go ahead, pour me a nip. So he poured me a, a half a glass of a white <laughs> alcohol, which was gin at the time. Okay. So I drank, and he said, get another one. So I got another one. By now, it's maybe an hour went by. I have not interviewed these cats. Now, Sonny Stitt was the other, was a saxophonist that was with him at the jazz showcase. So he says, how you feeling? I said, I'm feeling pretty good. Actually, my head was in a spin, right? So Joe Siegel comes in and says, all right, it's time to hit. I had not got the interview. You know, I was too wasted to get the interview, you know. So. Was that his plan? Apparently so. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm here with WDCB's own Al Carter Bay, the impresario. Where did that name come from? A guy by the name of Burgess Gardner, who's... Um, was a great band leader here in Chicago. He, uh, I met him when I was, uh, you know, working out at WBE, and he was listening to me one day, and I was giving him a history on certain musicians. And he says, "You're an impresario," and plus he knew I was attempting to do uh, live shows. I used to bring musicians in to perform at different locations, and he said, "You are an impresario." So that's how the name stuck. So were you pretty well-connected at that point with Chicago jazz musicians? Yeah, quite a few, quite a few. Just, you know, taking time out to just go visit. It wasn't expensive as it is now to go see an artist. So you can go see an artist for a couple of bucks and sit around without somebody over your shoulder saying you got to buy another drink, you know, which I've never really been a drinker, mm-hmm. you know, so give except, me a glass of water. Except when uh, Gene Ammons is involved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
you're going to be honored with this really great award that's coming from the Jazz Institute of Chicago. It's the Dr. Timmy Will Black. And I'm still shaking. <laughs> <laughs> the Dr. Timmy Will Black Community Service Award. Zenobia Black, his wife, had called me and said she had nominated me for his award. You know, and, and it's a, a really super honor to be even being thought and com- have in the conversation with this man, Timmy O'Black, who I had personally here at WDCB as one of my guests. He did? Yeah. Wow. And he had so much to say. He was telling me about him putting thumbtacks in his teacher's seat at Wendell Phillips High School. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the cat just had so much conversation and knew so much about what went on in the 30s and 40s. It just knocked me down. So I'm just honored his information about trying to be a humanitarian, you know, and that, that because that's a part of my life. You know, I had a youth foundation in Chicago Housing Authority called Al Carter Youth Foundation, where I work with young people, young people, uh, adults, senior citizens for over 40 years. And that was a love of mine. And I would have guests out, Harold Washington, Richard Daly, you know, Jane Byrne, you know, they would come and want to be a part of the the activities of uh, that I was having as being a, a executive director of the Al Carter Youth Foundation, which, again, f- over 40 years. And I just enjoyed working work with young people and putting on the minds of young people of how to duck a bullet, which could be difficult, you see. But yet we were able to save a lot of lives by involving ourselves with uh, the young people. So the Jazz Institute is hosting this uh, gala on uh, May 18th over at the Park West on the north side, and that's where you'll be giving your award. Do you know, are you going to get up and talk? Well, listen, I'll say hi. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and and how honored I am to be recognized, you know, in this Tim Black Award. I I really appreciate the the board and JIC and Heather and Zenobia and, and all the people that were tied into this 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 gift. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you, and I appreciate you coming on uh, to talk with me. Oh, thank you it's very much. great to, to I'm talk. I'm still nervous. I'm even <laughs> <laughs> He's just kidding. Al, it's, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. That was the impresario, Al Carter Bay, truly one of the nicest guys I've had the pleasure of working with. He's going to be recognized by the Jazz Institute of Chicago with the Dr. Timuel Black Community Service Award. And you can listen to Al right here on WDCB. Catch him Wednesday nights, 9 to 10, on Chicago Jazz Spotlight. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website, theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Thanks for listening. Misunderstanding all you see It's getting hard to be someone But it all works out It doesn't matter much to me Let me take you down Cause I'm going to Strawberry fields
quieran.